Hello and welcome to Two Fat Expats. My name is Kirsty Rice and I've been on the move for over 20 years. My podcast partner in crime is fellow Aussie Nikki Moffat and between us we have lived in, do you want to tell us Nikki, where have we lived? We've lived in a lot of countries, Kirsty. We've lived in Indonesia, Malaysia, Libya, Hong Kong, South Africa, Canada, the US, Qatar, Germany and Denmark. Welcome to Two Fat Expats. Hello Nikki Moffat, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Kirsty Rice. How are you? Good. Um, uh, just excuse if you can hear the Labradoodle in the background. I am back in Australia and the Labradoodle uh, thinks that I should be doing anything other than talking to you. So now he's going to join in and I don't know if you can hear him, but he's going to have a little chat as well. It's probably dog for feed me or stop ignoring me. Nikki, we always start with a how would you or how could you or how will you but what's your question for today? Kirsty, this is another question we got from our fabulous time in Singapore doing our live podcast. Feels like so long ago, but not only just a few short weeks. One of the questions we had from the group to bring to the podcast was, "What is? Uh, how will you deal with challenges that are unique to long-term expats without being that expat that patronises the newbies? Yes. If you're, pay, so, if you're, if you're patronising <laughs> the newbies, are you... Um, what are you doing? Oh, oh, you wouldn't understand that, of course, you know, having only been in the, this. Well, I think thing. so. So just an example on this. So we are moving out and we've had people come through our apartment to look at it. Ah. And I have not, you know, it's winter in Denmark. I'm not going to go and stand in the street while people come and look through my apartment. So I just, yeah. I let them in and I, and some of them are open to chatting and I say, if you've got any questions, let me know. And I just go and quietly sit in my study and carry on. Uh, I've met some lovely people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, one lady I met who is actually going to take the apartment, she's from Ireland, she's Irish, she has a two-year-old toddler and this is her first overseas posting, mm-hmm. overseas experience. <laughs> and I was just thinking about this question. I was like biting my tongue, biting my tongue. She's like, oh, yes, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. We're going to meet all the Danish people because we've got a toddler and uh, he's really into all these things and it's going to be great. And, and I was saying... Hmm. Yes, but you you might want to sort of also meet some people who are in the same situation as you, like you know, have just moved here with small children. So they, you know, because I'm I'm just thinking about all the things in your first year of an expat of expat life. Yeah, I'm not sure the Danes will be wanting to hear her (laughs) issues with the way the garbage is collected or whatever. So I was trying to be very, very polite. And the first time I didn't foist anything upon her, and the second time she came back with her husband to look to look at the apartment again, I was like, oh, she's definitely going to take it. I said, anyway, my I've got a lovely Irish friend, and I'd love to give you her number in case you ever want to sort of reach out. She just lives across the street and she's got a, a niece here who could babysit and anyway so I gave her the number and but I, I was thought I'm so, so reserved Nikki I'm so proud of you for not like <laughs> dumping all this information on her <laughs> and trying to explain how her whole life is going to be oh, uh, in just a few short months but anyway yeah that's quite funny that's what I think about without patronizing the newbies like <laughs> try, try not to voice your opinion of the world on them <gasps> Oh, so challenges that are unique to long-term expats. I reckon if you're feeling guilty now, wait till you've been in the gig for about 15 years, then you'll really understand what true expat guilt is. But honestly, I think financially one of the things that happens if you're Australian is you don't, you have to be very conscious of superannuation. 
um, you know, Nikki, you and I have talked about this quite a bit in that our friends that stayed in Australia or if they happen to just stay and work in Australia, Australia has a compulsory government superannuation program where your employer has to pay a certain amount of superannuation for you. Now, I have worked for Australian companies and been an Australian resident for tax purposes so I have continued to contribute but only at times you know not all the time so you know I am now of that age where you are fascinated with how much superannuation someone you know may possibly have <laughs> do you find yourself yes. wondering now, this that is, um Yes, so just for people that don't use the word superannuation, this is similar to a pension scheme, a government-run yes. pension scheme in another country. Yes, just to, yes, yes, um, yes, that's just to true. Explain that. But yes, I'm really fascinated because the government recently changed the superannuation laws and they put in the newspaper how many people in Australia had certain amounts of superannuation yes. in their accounts. Yes, yes. And one person in Australia has $554 million in their superannuation And let, let's accounts. just make that very clear. That is one person. In Australia, only one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't remember what the average was, um, but I, I think it, it's a thing in Australia you're always talking about, you know, do you need a million dollars in your super to be able to retire comfortably? Um, and obviously when I worked at Barefoot, it was the constant conversation of how much super do I need? And uh, there are a lot of people that, you know, will plan to live off a government pension, but then there's other people that are going to be self-funded retirees who that's how much their superannuation's worth is that they'll just you know draw it down as they go anyway i think that that is something that probably when you're 30 you're not thinking about unless you're my like my second child annabelle who already has 10 grand's worth of superannuation at age 20 because she is so methodical at putting that money away she's (laughs) i don't know how she's done that but she has um but I think that's something I probably didn't really think about when I was 30. I think I thought, oh, well, the people I'm working for now, you know, well, you know, we, we get looked after there. And, um, you know, in Qatar, there is no superannuation plan, but there is bonuses to staying with an employer for a certain amount of time. And you get your sort of, I guess, like a long service leave for certain amounts of time, whether it's, you know, a month per year a month's salary per year or whatever but I think be very conscious of that and if if you can get away with it tax wise I would continue to contribute to something I don't know Nikki or what would you do or I would have a piece of property or I would have shares I would be conscious of putting into something in the same way that you would if you were still there yeah I think you're right when you're 30 and you may or may not have young kids or be thinking about it, you you just and living overseas for the first time, you're just like, oh, my goodness, there's so many things to think about and I don't necessarily do this. I know it's very difficult for Americans because of the tax system yes. that they have in that they're globally taxed and so a lot, they're, they're, a lot of investment options in countries outside the US are close to them. So um, there are all sorts of challenges and that's the other thing is people throw their hands up and say, oh, it's all too hard. We'll just put this money over here for now and then, yeah. you know, may may use it for something else down the track or whatever. So, I mean, we've started two or three different things during our time that we weren't consistent with. Um, 
not not necessarily and now we're going back we're sort of pulling all the things from all the different places and it's yeah probably would have been better if in our once a year financial meeting that or you know that we had one and that we were a little bit more on track with that yeah in terms of consolidation and where it's going etc so yes look I think that that's definitely a challenge for the long-term expat you know as it is if you buy a house in one location and then you move and then you can't sell the house because of laws there or you have to in Germany you have to hold a house for 10 years before you sell it or there's sort of all sorts of financial implications so you know there's all sorts of rules in all sorts of different countries which is one of the challenges of of having um yeah. a long-term expat life yeah and just if anyone's interested um because I did work for barefoot i, I always found it um I guess very calming and soothing that if people ever asked him, oh, you know, I've I've got ten grand or I've got twenty grand, you know, what should I buy? As in, they were looking at shares and stocks or whatever, he would say to people, put it in your super, just put it in your super, because you know there it's just going to tick away and it's all about compound interest. And obviously, the the younger you are and the sooner you do it, the more you're going to have all those things. So. Um, I can't talk, like you said, Nikki, it just depends. With Americans, they have different tax laws. I mean, they're paying tax even as expats. Uh, I know with Canadians, yep. they have very strict laws about um, property and if you own property, you're going to have a tax problem. I mean, that may have changed since I lived there, but that was the case when I was there. But I think uh, one of the things, I know we would put money into my super rather than Greg's super as well. So, you know, if we mm-hmm. if we did get an extra, I mean, th- when you've got four young children and whatever, there's never really an extra <laughs> of 10 grand or whatever. But if something did happen uh, where you did sort of find yourself with that, where money was returned from something or whatever, uh, it did go into my super. But that is one thing I would say if you're a young expat that that is something that will become a problem as you travel through and you want to make sure that you're just putting that money away somewhere. I so clearly remember a bank manager at HSBC when we first moved to Doha saying to us, there are so many people that start this adventure and they have zero savings when they leave because they're at brunch and, um, you know, joining clubs and not missing out on anything and buying nice handbags or going on wonderful travel experiences and that's fine if that's what you want to do but just be wary of that you're eventually going to go home one day and that's not what everybody else has been doing um okay so i was thinking too as we've been talking about challenges that are unique to long-term expats and maybe it's because i've just got home is sometimes it can be hard when you do come home to really care about local issues in the same way that your buddies at home may care because you've you've gone to a different world. So you may not really care that the neighbour behind you has left the guttering out on the front, um, <laughs> on his front verge while he's getting his house built and you may stand there listening to another fellow neighbour talk about it like it is the worst thing that's ever happened, thinking, seriously, <laughs> no, like I'm not getting involved in this. But then then you kind of home for a little bit longer and it's like, oh, yeah, I can see that's a pain in the painting your rump for you but I think that is just a a silly example but I think there's local issues like that that you can sometimes appear to be very flippant about and that's a challenge that I think is unique to a long term because the longer you're away 
the less important or relevant it seems. But I think my biggest one, um, apart from the financial, is the whole thing of making friends and being open to getting hurt and really putting yourself out there. So I I only went back to Doha a year ago, Nikki. Like it's, I've only been back mm. there for a year. And when I went back there, I was only there for a couple of weeks and then I had to come back and, you know, I really kind of, I, I treaded, tread, trod, trod. I don't know what I did. I stepped trod. into it. I yeah. think it's trod. Yes, I trod. That just doesn't sound right, does it? No, it um, sounds weird, yeah. So I, I went into it very gently because I had children here that I was worried about, you know, and all the different things we were still worried about, countries shutting down, which seems so bizarre now. But um, it it has become very apparent to me um, and I don't know how you miss these things, but I think I've been really protecting myself from making new friends and having to say goodbye again. And because I do a lot socially with my husband, we're very much, you know, we play golf together, mm-hmm. we go out together, we're very happy in each other's company. I think I just was like, oh. And you're both very happy to go out. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so I think it's a little bit easy. But I, I really, it, it really dawned on me recently because um, I've, you know, I've made uh, female friends at golf and uh, it, that's fine. You meet them, you play golf, you stay and you have some lunch and you go. And then you might run into them somewhere else, hi, hi, whatever. But I saw on the socials, I saw a a whole bunch of women out having drinks and I realised half of them were people that I played golf with. And I thought, Kirsty, if you had been a little bit more proactive, it's totally on me. It's not them because it's part of a group that I'm in, but I don't open every email. I don't read every event. I don't pay a lot of attention. I could have easily gone to this thing. And I was looking at it going, that looks like fun. Do you know, they look like they're having a really good time Mm. as only a, a big group of women can do when they all get dressed up and go out for a ladies night and where you get three drinks you know for the bras or whatever and I really thought Kirsty you are just not jumping in like you usually would and I'm and I know it's because I've just had to say goodbye to so many people or even not had the opportunity to say goodbye which is even worse yeah um but I had that feeling and it's a wonderful wonderful feeling I had uh, something happened when I was at golf with a bunch of women that when I left there was uh, you know funny texts sort of going back and forth about something that had gone down and these women were kind of texting me saying are you okay? You know, after that, it was nothing serious. And um, I said, oh, I treated myself to an ice cream. And one of them said, God, you need a lot more than an ice cream. You need a serious, you know, a serious drink. And then there was a bit of banter back and forth. And then um, one of them said, oh, come and join our group, you know, next time when you do whatever. And then someone else said, oh, do you know this person? They do these drinks. All right, we'll get you to come. We'll get you to come with that. And, of course, I was leaving on the Thursday to come back here, but I it was the first time where I thought, oh, I think I'm finding new friends. I think, I'm, I think yes. you know, this is it, that I can jump into this and this is going to be okay. Um, so, yeah, that would be my 
my thing of that I think it's quite unique to long term. I think when you're a new expat, yes, it is hard to make friends all the time, but you're probably more open into that I'm going to need it. And, um, you know, yeah. you, you talk about your woman that came to your house and she's obviously very open to I'm going to make lots of Danish friends <laughs> and I'm going to do this. But I think I'm just getting back there again. But I think that is a really um, – that is a challenge to long-term expats. It's hard to keep opening up your heart knowing it's going to be broken. At school this year, there's been so many um, new people that I've met and obviously my daughter was only at school for – a month or so, but as you say, I've stayed involved in the school community. And there's so many people that I'd love to have two or three years with. Like I'd love to like really cement those friendships because I know they're good, amazing people that I want to stay in contact with and whatever. But in the end, I'm going to be here for less than a year and go and I'm going to see them on the socials and whatever and other people bed down and have deeper friendships and I'm like – Oh, I'm a little bit sad about that. Yes. You know, like it's it's kind of the opposite. Like I'm I'm kind of sort of it's, yeah. it's sorry, it's not the opposite for, for it me, is. but it's another angle of yeah. that in yeah. that I'm trying to I, I was cuz I kind of felt we were sort of covid affected here, so I've told everyone, you know, covid years don't count. You and I have both said covid yes. years don't count for living somewhere. So yeah. this is almost like sort of my first full year living here and so I'm just I'm feeling that I want to sort of have all these friendships, but then I'm like, I'm going, which doesn't really matter to me, but I know in my mind that I'll still be their friend. And whereas they, you know, and, and I think that's unique to expat friendships. Yes. People will, will always be your friend. I could come back in a year or meet them somewhere else in two or three years and up, and we'll still feel that we have the friendship because we were having a friendship and it was cut short by yeah. location-based things, yeah. which I think is a little bit different when you're living in a country all the time. But, yeah, I 100% get it on the feeling about friends thing yeah. because it's, it's one of the hardest things because community is everything and community is what you make when you go to a new location and community is what you leave. Community is what you care about the most. Some, someone the other night at a, at a function was telling me, you know, I've lived in some places and I didn't like the place, but I loved the people. Yes. And so even though I hated the weather and I hated this and I hated that, I loved the people there. And so I will always think of that place in a fond manner because of the people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What do you think are some of the challenges for long-term expats? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I think you've, you've covered a lot of them all. <laughs> I, I think it's, a lot of them for me is around community. Yeah. Um Financial. Also, I think um, very much if you're the accompanying partner, it's uh, can be career based stuff. Yes. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how if you move for one person's career, you know, you're the one, and the other partner is the one chopping and changing, looking for new opportunities, doing new things, etc. So, I think that that's career is definitely something that's impacted. I think that's a challenge. Yeah, huge. Um, that, that's and huge. I, I also think consistency around self-care and medical issues you know you might be just getting to the bottom of a, a, a medical issue in one country and then you go to another country and you don't pick it up and so it sort of sort of gets left behind because as we talk about when you go to a new country you're always betting down other people's issues etc so there might be something that you thought you should maybe keep but it's not that important to keep going to see that doctor or you know you yes. feel okay about it yes but had you stayed in a country you would have followed through and maybe nothing, but maybe something. Yeah. So I think that those are things to to that are challenges and you should watch out for and you should sort of try and be 
consistent if you can because, you know, when you move countries, finding new support arrangements in the medical field is quite difficult, as we all know. <laughs> yes. So, Nikki, my question to you, so this came out of a post when I can't remember who this person was. I, ho- I wish I could give them credit for it. But they had posted something about, and I still haven't eaten it, Nikki. Um, now, what what's it called? Salted duck egg chips or something that was looked, sounded so disgusting. But this person had gone to Singapore and gone, yum, 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 yum. I have been waiting, waiting, waiting to get my hand on a packet of these. These things are absolutely amazing. And I was amazed at how many people said, yum, 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 yum. And it just really stuck with me. I thought, I wonder how many of these weird things there are where we don't appreciate. Nikki, what's been your big food discovery in your travels that is now a staple in your pantry? Well, I tried to think about this and I kind of came up with an opposite list, which I know is not the point of the exercise. No, it's not. Nikki didn't understand the exercise. (laughs) Nikki didn't get the assignment. (laughs) Yeah, Nikki did not get the assignment. But what I came up with was things that I've found that are consistent in every country. You know, when you go to the supermarket and you find it, you're like, yes. Like the Bon Maman jam. Like the Bon Maman jam, I think. A raspberry jam in that's every country. That's the red checkered list. The red checkered the jar, lid. Yep, yes, with, yes. Correct. Yes. Correct. Heinz tomato sauce, because tomato sauce was a staple food in our house uh, for a lot of years. It was like one of the food groups on the plate. And so I remember when we moved to South Africa, my son would always say, and do you have Heinz tomato sauce? Because the tomato sauce served on every table in South Africa was not Heinz. And so people were like, who is this pretentious little brat? Just didn't like the taste of the other things. And the other thing is Alpenlite muesli. Oh. It's in a a light blue box. Yes, I know And if you find that in the cereal aisle, it's in a lot of countries and it's just just one of those things. You know, when you move places, and I know this is not the assignment, but it kind of is because I didn't have any of these things at home. I I had a different brand of tomato sauce. So I didn't use that brand of jam. And I never had Alpenlite. Yeah. So it's it's kind of the assignment, but it isn't. Yes. Like I'm not looking at something. So that's true. Not that brand of jam, not that tomato sauce. I'm a fountain girl through and through. And I never ate muesli at all, any kind of cereal like that in Australia. So I just think... It's half the assignment. Okay. That's for me, Kirsty. What about you? Well, what I was going to say is it's come to me now. It wasn't duck. So can everybody just, <laughs> everyone who went, oh, my God, she's completely watched that. So the company is called Irvin's and it's salted egg fish skin. And I've got yes. a packet. Okay. Now yes. you put a picture of it in the group, I right? did because I saw it at the 7-Eleven when I was walking past. And I'll tell you what, people, it is not cheap. It is not cheap. Anyway, I couldn't bring – I was going to, like I bought it and I thought, right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to eat it. And then I'd, so I'd posted it in the Two Fat Expats group saying, I found it, you know, whoever it was that posted this, you know, consider yourself an influencer because I've now gone and bought it because you posted it. And someone said to me, I'll be prepared to have a very funny tummy at the end of it. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not about to eat this and get on the plane. <laughs> And then so when you've got that in your mind, it's hard to find an appropriate moment to choose to eat the salted <laughs> the salted egg fish skin. <laughs> so I haven't eaten it yet, but I will. But the other thing that happened to me, 
was when I was in Bangkok, I was staying at a hotel that had this beautiful tea and the brand is TWG and the flavour of the tea was a bourbon and vanilla tea and it was the best cup of tea I had ever had in my life and I just became obsessed with this these tea bags that were in our hotel room. Like it was so good. And then when I was walking through the food halls of Bangkok, I found the TWG shop and discovered that they are a Singapore company. So when we were in Singapore, Nikki, I thought, right, I'm going to – and sure enough, there are TWGs everywhere. There's also one just at Raffles to give you an idea of how much the TWG tea is going to cost you. You can buy it at David Jones in Australia and I'm sure you can buy it at any upmarket fancy pants department store anywhere. It's that kind of tea. But, oh, it's not just me. After I'd posted it in the um, Two Fat Expats group, I've had several people say, I have gone and tried your tea. You are absolutely right. Someone said to me, it's like a, um, oh, what they say, like a cigar in a, you know, in a fancy hotel in a whatever. It is so good. It is so, so good. Anyway, so that would be mine. Anyway, I put it out to the group. Nikki, I was interested. Uh, someone said the particular chili sauce that they have on their eggs that they had in Bali 11 years ago. That's the sort of stuff I was looking for. It was like, yes. <laughs> That's commitment. Yes. yes. Yeah. They came yeah. back from a trip, Googled where to buy a certain snack that they had in Seoul. Um, and that they can't believe how much you uh, get charged to have a box delivered. <laughs> okay. So other people t- talked about premium you. Yang Sang chicken essence. Yeah, I assume that you make sort of, sort of like a, a chicken broth, or it's like a bouillon. Yeah, That's what I'm it must be imagining for that. Tommy mayonnaise. Um, they may or may not have a dozen or so tubes in their luggage as we speak. And also, then Christine chimed in and said, "What about Tommy remoulade?" Which is just. They love the remoulade in uh, Denmark. They're big. It's a little bit like a tartare sauce. It's uh-huh. it's that's kind of consistency, and it has um, sometimes it has flavored with curry, uh-huh. sometimes pickles or whatever. It can also contain horseradish. Like there's just a hundred remoulades you can have. And I said to you before, it just like makes your bread wet. <laughs> but that's my opinion. <laughs> Obviously not Christine's. Um, someone else said pearl jasmine tea balls from Beijing. They said a, a quarter of a kilo bag was $2 in 2007. Um, and so they've said that they've searched high and low, found one shop online that led them to a mall in Germany <laughs> and that they mail it by the kilogram once or twice a year. Um, how funny is that? And they said now it's needless to say it, it's eight, eight bucks a kilo now, but certainly cheaper than a plane ticket to Beijing. <laughs> Paprika flavored Pringles, not available in the States. I mean, someone said they stumbled across them on a long haul layover in Dubai back in 2012. It was 3 a.m. and they needed a snack to counter a hypoglycemic episode. But honestly, paprika flavored chips are all through Europe. They don't have any other flavor here. In the Netherlands, in Germany, they just eat paprika flavored. And yeah, I, I'm not be, a fan. They're big in to Qatar too, paprika flavored. Are they paprika flavored? Yes. Do you know, so I'm, I'm also, embarrassed so, to admit that I only recently just learned what 
paprika is. Do you know what paprika is? Oh, that was a big thing on the internet. Yes, that was a big. Yes, I did. I did know what it was. I did not. Because... And for those who don't didn't know either, it's just red peppers. It's just ground red peppers, or what we would call it capsicum in Australia. I think the Americans would call it peppers. That's all paprika is. I was sure there was some magical paprika plant somewhere, but no, no. <laughs> Okay, someone else. That was a I'm a today years old thing. Yes, yes. Someone else said that they have uttered the words, is it wrong to visit X place for the X food product that I miss? So they said in Germany it was Vitam R yeast extract, uh, fruit teas. No idea. No, in the USA it was dill pickled kettle chips. They said in the UK it was twiglets, but thankfully they're sold in Coles and Woolies now in Australia. They are. There's a special UK section in Coles now that has all those things. Uh, Thailand, a, a specifically salted roasted broad bean snack. I reckon I could get around that. Um, but you can get a similar product from some Asian groceries. Um, and they have all of these things sent from different friends in obviously all the different places they've lived. Someone was saying Belgium chocolates, that they will literally <laughs> reroute their flights through a layover in Belgium just to buy chocolates. Yeah. I love an American product called grape nuts. I get it when I'm there. I don't know what grape nuts are. Are they like corn nuts? Is it something that goes in your cereal? Is that what they were saying? Yeah. Grape Okay, so grape nuts are a cereal. Okay, grape nuts, not something I ever came across. No, me neither. Uh, Clamato juice and by default Caesar's cocktails get in my belly. Mm. Um, No, Clamato juice, no thank you. Uh, That's why I bet that person's Canadian. (laughs) My big thing is the Dutch chocolate sprinkles that are eaten on bread with lashings of butter but only a particular brand and I'm not going to say the name of them or the brand because I can't pronounce them properly. Uh. (laughs) But the Dutch people know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Australians feel the same way about hundreds and thousands. Mm. Okay, so someone else said pear soda and cardamom buns from Sweden. I haven't ever been to Sweden, but I'm putting that on my list. I live one block from the most famous bakery in Denmark, which does cardamom buns. Oh, Nikki, That's you have specialty. to do a taste for us. Have you had them? I've had them. I don't. I don't love cardamom, hmm. but the bread is amazing. But I think I don't, of cardamom, I, don't I think cardamom. of Indian food. Yeah, it's a weird taste for me in, in bread. That's that's what I think. I feel that way. Hmm. Someone I said agree. I concur. Jammy Dodgers and salt and vinegar discos. Uh, okay. Um, and then the last one from Nikki where someone said Trader Joe's Salsa Authentica. We bring jars back and save them for emotional emergencies. <laughs> That's my favourite comment, emotional emergencies. It is very good. That that. is very good. Ria Menorca shoes in Singapore. Oh, I wish I would have had had a look when I was there. Can spot a Singapore expat a mile away in their Rias. I'm going to be Googling that to have a look. Um, So that was Ria Menorca, if anyone else wants to Google. Tartex vegetarian pate, a staple in Germany. Nikki, was it a staple for you? I st- no idea. I not still for me. hanker for this and German bread rolls since I lived there in the late 80s to early 90s. Can't wait to get some this summer. There you go. Okay, Kirsty, moving on to our three favourite things. Oh, What do you have in your bucket this week that you're going to share with us? Okay, Nikki, have you seen the Fablemans? I have not. Mm. And I'm interested in what you're saying because I wonder whether it was just a bit of an indulgence on Steven Spielberg's part to make a movie about his 
early life. Oh, well, it's definitely a movie that I think he would have only been able to make as an older man because I think he would have really struggled to make it while his parents were alive. So I I had no, Mm -hmm. like with most people, actually I'm really interested, Nikki, just going off track a bit but on a similar vein, Australian story on – on Monday nightness in uh, Australia, but Claudia that, Carver, yes, and they show her that she had a really um, eclectic parents, and that she had to be very grown up. And there's a lot of uh, stuff from her kids saying, "Mum wouldn't be." Mum says she wouldn't be the artist that she was if she hadn't have had such a crazy upbringing. Blah blah blah. I think there's a bit of this with Steven Spielberg. So what got me onto The Fablemans was I was listening to his interview on Smartless and he was talking about that when um, the actor and actress who played his mother and father came out uh, on the first day in their costumes, ready for their costume checks and whatever, he had said to them the night before, hey, look, I'll be fine. I got all my emotional stuff out when I was writing this and when I was, you know, preparing it and I'm good. And he said he turned around and took one look at them and burst into tears because it mm. was just so his parents. It is... I guess for anyone who's had children, you know, that battle of, you know, being a good parent um, but also being happy and what makes you happy. And it showed an artist and a a mathematician together. Yeah, quite often mathematicians make great artists um, but it was the personality. His father was kind of very dry and... um, driven in his role and his mother was very arty and eclectic and um, really encouraging of that side of him. But it's also an insight into what it was like to be Jewish and in white bread America at that time and just what it was like to move around America and just he's from a big family. He's got a big loving family. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. But yeah, it's got some great actors as well. Yes. Like Michelle Williams is in it, right? Yeah, yeah, she plays the mother and she just, mm. there is a scene in that where she doesn't say a word, she just has a look about her. It's just this look in her eye and you just think, you are a phenomenal actress. You are really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I look, so I really enjoyed it. I watched it on, you know how with Apple now you can get movies that are in the cinemas right now but yep. you've got to pay 15 bucks, you know, to get it or 20 bucks or whatever. So we did that one night. As if you would have to if you went to the movies. (laughs) Yeah, and um, I prefer it because still in Qatar, well, actually I can't say this with pure knowledge because I haven't been to the movies for this reason for a long time, is in Qatar they they still remove and edit certain things. And also I don't know why it just lends itself. It's a country that lends itself to people that want to be on their phone um throughout the movie and so you're trying to watch the movie and someone's screen lights up you know next to you so i a few years ago i said no more um so for me i am more than happy to pay the 20 bucks and watch it at home you know whatever anyway loved it i thought it was really good nikki you know i'm a massive survivor fan and this year you are a massive survivor fan is there a survivor series on there is it concludes on Sunday night. It has been absolutely brilliant. Oh. It's been heroes versus villains. And once again, they switched it up. They changed it. They did, you know, 
did a whole lot of things, but this isn't what I was going to talk about because I have talked about Spartan many times before. There was an article in The Guardian written by Benjamin Law who um, often writes in The Guardian. He's an Australian journalist um, and he's done all sorts of things. He's written his own uh, series that was on the ABC that was about his life, um, but he was on Survivor. And I was really fascinated with his experience on Survivor in that he um, is a uh, a gay Asian man and I there was a lot of, I don't trust him, I don't trust him, do you trust him, I don't trust him. And I was, I, you know, when you're watching something and you're going, is this, is this a race thing? Is this a yeah, homophobic yeah, thing? Yeah, I do because I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, is it what is what is this? And um, or is it just that this is his personality, and I'm being incredibly unfair to the people that are with him, because the people that were with him seem like good people. Do you know we've seen them in series before? But he wrote a great article about the experience of being on there. And he then did a follow-up interview, which you can listen to. And uh, I, the insight into what happened to his body when he was on there, it just is a reminder. You know, it's, I think with Survivor, we've all got – it's been going for so many years. There's been so many seasons that we all just go, oh, yeah, there they are, sleeping on the beach, under the trees, doing whatever. It is really hard and I think when Survivor first started, we all knew it was really hard and there was a lot of focus on how hard it was and now it's become far more athletic and all the rest of it. But he talked yeah, about – Yeah, because in the beginning there were the regular people. Then yes. There was Richard. Yes. We all remember Richard. Oh, we all remember she Richard. She lost all the weight and walked yes. around naked and yes. he, was, he was the villain. Yes. And people talked a lot about it because people would lose like 30 kilos yeah. like doing Survivor and stuff. Yes. Whereas now there's people a lot go of athletes. in with a different mindset and they're ready. So he talked about that, Nikki. He talked about how he went and he trained to be on Survivor. So he's a Survivor tragic. He loves Survivor. He got on, he, he trained for months before he went on it. He was in the best physical condition he'd ever been in. But he said for the first, I think it was the first three or four days, it just rained and rained and rained and rained and rained and oh rained and rained. Gosh. And he said he, when the rain finally stopped and they all walked back out onto the beach and whatever, he took off his sock and he said he had this hole in his foot that he could not see the end of. It just went and went and went for miles. And he said it was hideous. And he said that when the doctor looked at it, he said, you have to remember that he said, it's like, imagine you've got a sore and then you just keep it like, he said, imagine what it's like when you're in the bath and what your skin looks like when you come out of the bath an hour later, if you're like me and you can spend an hour in the bath. Um, he said, imagine you spend four days in the bath, but you've got a wound in your foot that you don't know about. Imagine what that looks like after four days of sitting in the bath. It was like, oh, yuck. But I really enjoyed the article. I'll put a link to it um, in the show notes. Um, but I thought he wrote very honestly about how he felt he was perceived, um, but also about the physical experience of doing it and if he would do it again, etc. So that's my second thing. And then my third thing, oh, I'm really struck. I, I don't know if I want to talk about um, Pamela, a love story, or the Chris Rock um, 
thing. Have you, if you've seen either of those things. Can you talk about Chris Rock? I've seen Chris Rock and I've got very mixed feelings about it. So I want to hear what you thought about it. Yes, I have very mixed feelings about it too. Um, So I I think maybe, Nikki, I'm of an age um, where I have, young adult children and teenage children and and I constantly look at how people are cancelled and um, I I feel in constant conflict about that, right, because I feel like you and I have talked often about how one thing you learn when when your children become teens is that everything is black and white. There is no grey. Yeah. And if you're bad, you're bad and you're done, I'm done with you and so it's easy. To cancel, right? And as you get older, you realise, well, people say dumb stuff or people may grow out of something or change or whatever. So with Chris Rock, his um, he appealed to me because of that in his beginnings because he talked about that, about um, about the outrage and that one of the things he said that I thought was particularly funny was people, because we are of the same sort of vintage, was he talked mm. about uh, older people at work are just sitting in the office terrified that they're going to say something wrong that cancels them <laughs> and how young people, you know, you don't have to wait for that promotion. Just wait because that, that dumb old guy is going to say something stupid and you'll be able to get him out of there <laughs> before you say it. And when he talked about Lululemon and their yoga pants and how there's a sign on the wall about how, you know, all the great self-righteous things that they do in the world of saving the planet and whatever, and he was calling them political yoga pants i was i was going along with him right i was finding all of that very 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 funny when he came to the bit about women that was when i sort of struggled a little bit because it it felt like his relationships with women were very transactional and um yeah I, I, that was when I went down a path. I was like, oh. But then I was thinking, Nikki, well, that's it. You don't, you don't have to like everything he says. You don't have to find no, everything. That's it's the funny. point of what he's saying. That yeah. is the exact point of what he was saying. And so, yeah, I, I liked that he brought up the Will Smith thing. I, um, I wish I would have gone to his live show to have seen if there was any different. Now, there's one bit, Nikki, where he botches. The main joke. It's the Will Smith yeah. joke. Yeah. I still can't work out how, why they didn't just edit that. Because it, it was live. It was live. It was live on Netflix. But he, as in, oh, Netflix it did it too. live it from the theatre. They did, 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 did. Yes. It's the first, one of the first live things Netflix That's right, has ever done. That was the he point. Had, he had done that show all over the world mm. previously, but I've got it. Got it, got it, got it. That makes sense. Um, yes, because I was thinking, I don't understand, because he kind of went around and did it all over again. He ruined the whole thing. He it, ruined it, it. It, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, so there has been, I have um, read other things where people have said that he was unfair to Jada Pinkett Smith. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that because I don't know the background of because he talks about how Jada Pinkett Smith told him that he shouldn't do the Oscars uh, the year that Will Smith wasn't being chosen yep. for an Oscar and whatever, and so I think, well, that just gets messy. There's a there's a there's a personal thing there, and that obviously explains a lot of what what the outrage was from Will Smith and whatever. 
what did you think of it? No, also I found myself laughing at some bits and I found myself feeling really uncomfortable about other parts. Yeah. And I think that I found that difficult. Like I am, I want to like it all. Like watching yeah. Hannah Gasby do Douglas, oh, I'm like I love every part of what she did. Yes. Yeah. How about Ricky Gervais? Do you laugh all the way through Ricky Gervais or do you find some of his No, I don't think so. Like I think they're very – and I think that that's – I'm always telling my child – my children, that's what's wrong with the world. People can't accept that there's grey and you and you not yeah. gonna like everything about someone, blah 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 blah. Yeah. Yet innately I wanted to like everything about it or I didn't like it. Yeah. And I really struggled with that. And so I went looking for articles to see if there was anything that explained about how I felt and why I felt that way. Because I did think it was personal about Jada um Pinkett Smith and I felt that that made it not funny. You know, he, he it was very vitriolic the way that he was spitting it out. And, I mean, that's his performance style. I get it. But it was yes. – I just felt that that part was – felt like he was angry. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah. like, that's not – that's not – yet when you think about some parts of Hannah Gadsby and Nanette, she's obviously angry in that. Yeah. And so – I saw with the Jada stuff that was interesting was he made the point that she had – shared so much of her life online which she has she has monetized yeah she she has monetized yep. her personal life and she has chosen to have very uh open on honest who, who would ever know really of conversations where she bears all and I thought that's interesting too because it's like well if you do that are you open then are you then your um, fresh meat for a comedian with what they can say about you if you're willing to put it all out there and share it all. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But you're right. It is his style though too. He talks in a very specific way that yeah. that has that bite to it, doesn't it? And, I mean, that is half his stick that makes him funny is it's the way he speaks. No, for sure. And, yeah. you know, the way he talked about his his own children being thrown out of school and, or, you know, yeah, expelled yeah, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Like I, I thought you've got to accept that as well because he is, he is exposing his personal life yes. at that level. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Nikki, what are your three things? Okay, so <laughs> The Rich Trials of J.K. Rowling is a podcast that I've been listening to. Ah, yes. Now, it's, um, it, it's really interesting. So it's done by Megan Phelps Roper, who is an ex-Westboro Baptist Church person. She's the host. Right. So the Westboro Baptist Church are those people that go around to funerals of um, army veterans and people and protest and picket them saying, you know, you died because you're supporting bad things in the world. And they're really, really not kind people. Um, wow. They're Christian fundamentalists and they're sort of family-based. Anyway, Megan Phelps Roper got out of the cult, so to speak, so she is now on the outside of that. She's no longer a member of the Westboro Baptist Church and she's examined a lot of her beliefs and, and why she did things and how she did them, etc. The blurb is it's an audio documentary that examines some of the most contentious conflicts of our time through the life and career of the world's most successful author. Now, 
you might know that J.K. Rowling's been controversial for a long time mm. because originally it was the conservative uh, people that didn't like J.K. Rowling because yes. she was talking about witches and wizards. Yes. And we don't have those in the Bible. And uh, Harry Potter was banned from many schools and many local libraries and all sorts of places. And in that, during that time, the liberal movement were like, yes, Harry Potter embraces everything that's different. You can be unique. You can be different. You can be, you don't have to be the same as everyone else. This is about diversity. This is about inclusion. All these people have all these things. We love everybody. And then during 2020, J.K. Rowling came out with some tweets where she um, presented as trans exclusionary Mm. and uh, was branded as part of the TERF movement which is the trans exclusionary radical feminist movement where there are women who say that they don't they don't accept I'm going to get this wrong because I know my children would be yelling at me right now but basically it's feminists against trans women people mostly care about trans women in the media the focus is usually on trans women and they're the people that are getting um, a lot of grief. Yes. Anyway. And when you say that, Nikki, you mean that the grief that they're getting is usually about competing against, uh, competing in women's events or being in women's yes. change rooms or being yep. with women that women's might. Women's bathrooms. Yeah, yep. women's bathrooms. It, that seems to be it's always about sport or bathrooms. Or As J.K. Rowling points out, there is one case in the history of the world where a man was convicted of rape. He was convicted of raping women and he was sentenced, but he transitioned, they transitioned, and so she was put in a female prison. That's right. And raped female prisoners. That's right. So it's very difficult to talk about because people have very strong opinions about it. Yes. But the, the point is, is that, we're up to six episodes and it starts off on the other end. Now I have a friend here who is very, she is um, a passionate campaigner and activist for everything in the LGBTQIA plus community. And she is very sad about JK Rowling and Harry Potter. And I said to her, you know what, you should listen to this podcast. I said, it's not going to change your mind necessarily, but I think you should listen to the whole story arc, the whole history of how, of the whole thing. She said, okay, well, I, I trust your, Guidance, so I'll have a listen. And then she's after three episodes, she's mentioned me, I love this podcast. It's so fantastic because we're now in the part of J.K. Rowling's life where the conservative southern states of America are, you know, banning her and she's fighting back against them and everyone's fighting back. And then after that we switch to, you know, during yeah. COVID and how J.K. Rowling made the tweets and where she thinks about that. And so it's it takes you on an emotional journey, basically. And it says it's an audio documentary, and it is. It's totally presented from one point of view. Like you're meant to feel the journey. You're meant to go, oh, I remember this about, how, you, know, yeah. you know, 20 years ago about how people felt about the horror Harry Potter and yeah. J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Isn't that a shame? And then you sort of are guided through the whole thing about how you do the transition, and then you're now in the current environment where J.K. Rowling is making these statements and why she made them, because she didn't have to make them. You know, she talks about the first time she made a tweet, she messaged her management and said, buckle up, I'm about to send this tweet. And, you know, but then sent it. No one had time to sort of come back to her and say, 
no, no, you can't no, do that. Don't it's going to wreck everything. She said, now I don't even call management. Like they've got, you know, I don't even let them know. I just, yeah. I just write something or an article or whatever when I want to. Yeah. But in the beginning, she was very conscious of what what was going to happen because she'd been through all these years of yes. it happening to her from the other point of view. Anyway, it's really interesting. I think it's it's a great listen, and it's one of those things that the world is grey. But how do you uh, feel about J.K. Also Rowling? Also, to be sure. Yeah, I don't know, which is why I'm listening. Yeah. Right. So I have these arguments. So so my children have cancelled her, so to speak. Yes. And I'm like, but these books that you've read hundreds and hundreds of times, like you now, yes. you know, like I, I can't understand them. And they, both my children, loved Harry Potter so much. And we have these dog-eared copies of these books. And so I don't know how I feel about J.K. Rowling, but I'm very aware that I'm being led on a journey to get to an outcome about how I feel about her. Uh-huh. So i am sort of got that sort of yes. process in my mind. But anyway, yeah. I, it's, really, it's really well done. That, Excellent. It's really so well what's done. it called I again? highly recommend. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Brilliant. I think it's just on Spotify, but it's very okay. good. Okay. The other show that I've watched that I'm really enjoying is um, Poker Face with yeah, Natasha Yeah, I keep seeing Leon. that pop up. Yeah. Yeah, so basically she is just someone who's a little bit down and out, works in Vegas, and but she has this trick that she can look at someone's face and know if they're lying. So she can tell if someone's lying by what they, how they say it or how they speak or whatever. So in, in the main part, like people, you know, there are so many lies, little lies that people tell every yes, day that yes. mean nothing. So she has this thing where she can tell if people are lying, which is basically a great skill if you live in Las Vegas, I imagine. And so she gets into all sorts of trouble. And then it's just a series of stories of her. She has to leave Las Vegas because of something that happens. And, you know, when people find out they want to use it or use her, you know, she's solving a series of mur- murders based on the fact that she can tell when people are lying and when they're not. It's also interesting because it doesn't present it as a lot of TV shows, dramas, sitcoms, whatever, are done sort of from a middle to high income view of the world. Like, you know, you're looking at yes. someone in a nice house and, you yes, know, all yes. this kind of stuff. Whereas she's not. She's got no money. She's living hand to mouth, you know, yeah. because she ends up in all these particular situations. So it's really showing sort of a, a more sort of gritty kind of. Yes. version of of the world yeah. which I, I kind of yeah. like and appreciate i think she's very talented um you know she's done a lot of stuff russian doll orange is a new black she's been in a lot of those kind of things oh, and she was good. recently on smartless so the last one that i had that actually that blew my mind was mh370 the plane that disappeared on it oh yes have you watched it I haven't watched it. I've watched all the shorts. I'm waiting to watch it with G. It looks good. It blew my mind. Like it just, <gasps> it's wild how it's told. If my family was on one of the planes, I don't want to have watched that documentary. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. It talks about things like who we trust and who we use to tell the stories. Like there are 153 Chinese nationals on the plane. 50 Malaysians, four French, two Kiwis, five Indians, and then there were some other nationalities, Australians, Indonesians, three US, two Iranians with fake, well, they had fake and stolen passports, they weren't Iranians. Um, they were Sorry, they weren't from the original country, they were Iranians. But there are 153 Chinese nationals, and the way they portray those families in this documentary, I was looking at it a little bit like you were talking about earlier about 
is this being racist, the way that they're being portrayed on the documentary? Like, why are we only talking to one of their family members when we're talking to, like, mm. the stories being told mainly through a French guy and a New Zealander um, whose husband was on the plane. She lives in Perth. And and I was just like, it, it just felt a little bit strange the way that they told the documentary. Now, I'd be interested to, to see if anybody else has watched it and feels the same way about it. I think mm. it's very, very difficult. You have so much access and there's so much footage of families in absolute distress. And I just, I don't know, I just felt, I don't know, I just felt there was something a little bit funny about that. But just back to the the people, whether they were Iranian or not Iranian and their passports yeah. didn't match. Call me naive, a very naive traveller. But the other day when I was flying, so last Thursday night when I was flying from Qatar to Australia, I did the whole thing. And this will be my little expat tip for anyone who doesn't do this and you do want to do it. So the, the day before I was about to fly, I got a upgrade offer, you know, for 475,000 yep. Avios points you can upgrade. It was like I have been on flights where I get 7,000 points. So you can imagine 475 to me is just what? You might as well ask me to come and clean your house for two weeks and look after your your children. It's never going to happen. Anyway, uh, so but what, what I have learned and many others who travel also know is what you do is you go and you check in and you do whatever you ask, how many people are on the plane and if there are any business class seats. And then you go to a special counter and you get to that counter and you say to people, how much would it be, how many points would it be for me to upgrade? And they say to you, it will be 70,000. So all yep. of a sudden it's 400,000, but you've got to take the win. Anyway, I sat there having a great chat with this woman because it was like, I really don't like parting with my points, Nikki. And if I know no. I've got a spare yeah. seat next to me in economy, I'll just suck it up because I'm yeah. saving those points for when I really, really want that business class seat. So I fly 90% of the time I fly economy and, every, you know, probably once a year I might upgrade. But as I was standing there talking to her, a very nice man um, came over with a man who I would explain if I had to give a picture, um, maybe rural Pakistan. I'm not sure he had a Pakistani passport, but um, definitely looked like he wasn't from the city. And um, the guy was asking the woman behind the counter who was being extremely nice to me, um, asking her what, what have you done with this man? Do you know what is happening? His flight is meant to be, it's going to start boarding in 10 minutes. You know, what are we meant to do with him? And her reply was, that's not his passport. And I was like, because to me, that would be the biggest emergency (laughs) of my life. (laughs) And I was just, my eyes, I must have looked like I was a long way from home. Because I just looked at this guy and looked at her thinking, what? You know, he's obviously not from Doha. How did he get here if that's not his passport? How? What are you going to do with this guy if that's not his passport? (laughs) What happens in this situation if that is indeed not his passport? And I was just flummoxed by the whole thing. You know, how did he get on the plane? 
what is he going to do? Like, and this poor man, you know, basically zero English, was completely reliant on this one guy in the airport yeah. that he'd obviously tracked down to say, I don't understand what's happening and what's going to happen to me. What do I do? Um, but, yeah, I don't know how the story ended, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about him. Like, is he still sitting in, in the airport in Qatar? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what, what happened? Because the guy that came along to ask, he seemed genuinely concerned as well, saying, you know, he's about to miss his flight. We need to make a decision. You know, you need to tell him what is happening. And she just kept saying, oh, in a minute, in a minute. You know, it was like, can you imagine that distress? Uh yeah. No, yeah. no yeah, idea. Anyway. Basically, it's a documentary in three parts. So the first part tells the story of what happened and then and then they give you three theories. So it's – and the first theory is what everyone thinks happened and then there are two other theories which are, are written about extensively after the documentary came out. These are conspiracy theories. They can't be proved. Nothing can be proved because we can't find the plane. We don't know <laughs> – what happened? Like, that's the thing. Like, I just, I read all this stuff. Like, I mean, even what they say happened is so out of this world that I can't begin to understand how it would even happen. I, I can't, you Me know, too. like, I just, I can't. Oh. And so I think the other two theories they, they contend are hilarious, but also just as legitimate to me as the one that we're meant to believe that what this guy did. Like it's just nuts. But also there are some amazing things. So I don't know if you know about the French um, justice system, but they can take on sort of anything anywhere in the world. So this right. this one, So there were very few French guys, but French people on the plane, but there was, oh, there was a mother with two children and the mm. father was flying to meet her in Beijing. And when he got off the plane, the other plane wasn't there and he was oh. had all these missed phone calls from his other son who was at university in Paris. Oh. Anyway, I can barely say it without yeah. I mean, watching it. It's very difficult. But then I'm, I'm like, well, there's four French people on the plane. I mean, obviously I feel very emotional about the, the story, but I'm like, why are they even talking to him? But it's because... He goes on to be contacted by secret people and like this is a whole bizarre thing. And he engages a French lawyer and there's this whole thing that, that, that ties him into the documentary, which is I 100% know why they've used him in it and whatever. Yeah. And um, they use a, a crew member. Her husband was on the plane and she was also crew. So, you know, she was talked about mm. it from the point of view of being part of Malaysian Airlines. But yeah. it's just the whole thing is totally wild, and it just makes it, it. It sort of made me examine our our common our constant need for immediate information, yes. and who we who we believe should be giving us the information, and yes. if they're not giving it as fast enough, then we don't believe them, yeah. and and also how we look at it from our Western perspective. You know, like people saying, "Well, the Malaysian government lied." I'm like, any government's going to lie in that situation because. It's not a lie. It's just that they don't have enough information, but they're going to tell you something. They could make a mistake mm. and tell you something that is later proved to be a lie, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily a known lie. You know, they're just telling you something. Yeah. yeah. For the time, because they have to stand up and speak because we. We are in this world where we constantly need information all the time. We need updates all the time. Yeah. 
you know, in most situations you would go away and, you know, but this, our constant news cycle for the, anyway, I want you and G to watch it because it is, the whole thing is totally wild. It is just amazing. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Sorry, I got okay. carried away, but that's my thing. I will watch it. <laughs> um, okay. All right, Nikki, lovely chatting. Uh, I will talk to you next week. Okay, speak to you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.